Usually when I debate this topic, that is the topic of abortion, said pro-life advocate Helen Alvarez, I feel like I'm behind a podium speaking French while the other person is behind a podium speaking Finnish. There's no common ground. This is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz, and you're listening to the After Dinner Scholar, Wyoming Catholic College's weekly podcast. Part, though hardly the whole, of the reason that there is no common ground in the abortion debate is that our pro-abortion friends and family don't understand our arguments, and we don't understand theirs. For some years now, Wyoming Catholic College philosopher Dr. Michael Boland's students have puzzled over what might be the best philosophical argument for abortion rights. Judith Jarvis Thompson's Defense of Abortion, published in the journal Philosophy and Public Affairs back in 1971, about 18 months before Roe v. Wade was decided. Dr. Bolin, when did you first encounter uh, Judith Jarvis Thompson's Defense of Abortion, and what influence has this article had in philosophy? I couldn't recall the exact time. It's been many years ago. It's a it's a pretty famous piece, maybe the single most famous philosophical piece defending abortion. So you'll often see uh, Thompson's examples trotted out in, by other authors um, and with reference to the piece. It's pretty influential, I think, because everyone remembers the examples. They're vivid and colorful. You're kidnapped and hooked up to a violinist with these piece plugged into your kidneys, et cetera. They're very memorable examples. Um, but also, it's influential, I think, because today, if you encounter abortion debates, and almost would put quotation marks around that word, Facebook-level, Twitter-level debates, there's not really much substance to them. Now, it's, the argument is abortion is okay because the fetus is a clump of cells, or it's not okay because abortion is murder, and there's no ex- explanation for those things. Whereas uh, Thompson is fairly sophisticated. She doesn't argue that the fetus is not a person. She says, okay, let's grant the fetus is a person and see what how the debate plays out from there. So it's much more carefully thought out than the typical things one encounters today. And Well, give us, give us if you will, an outline of her argument and tell us more about the the violinist and the box of chocolates. <laughs> sure. The basic idea is this. As I was just saying, Thompson says, let's suppose the unborn child is a person, just like the rest of us, and has the same rights. Will it follow that abortion is wrong? And she makes a number of arguments by analogy, typically, to say that, look, even you opponents of abortion, you don't really hold the principles that you would need in order to say that abortion is wrong. And you can see this by my analogies. So let's take the violinist, the most famous analogy first. So the idea is you are, against your will, kidnapped by the Society of Music Lovers and attached to the famous violinist because his kidneys need yours or something like that. And so the hypothetical scenario Thompson gives us says, in order for the violinist to survive, you've got to stay in bed, plugged into him back to back for nine months. After that, he'll be okay. The nine months, of course, is the analogy to pregnancy. And Thompson asked, well, would it be morally permissible to unplug yourself from the violinist and not wait the whole nine months, even if you know that he's going to die if you do that? Even though you know that you are killing him. I noticed that language in there. 
It's not that he will die. It's you're killing him. Well, one of the uh, one of the questions or one of the criticisms that people will make in response to that objection is exactly that. They'll say, well, no, there's a difference between killing the violinist and doing something that will lead to his death. Right. Um, and there was some uh, discussion of that distinction, whether it's a valid distinction in the piece. That's one line of attack. But the reason the example is interesting is that, say, in my experience discussing this article with our, in our high school program, um, a lot of students tend to agree with Thompson's example. They say, no, it would be okay to unplug yourself from the violinist. But they don't really see how is that different from abortion. And that's nice because it gets them thinking, right? Well, how much do I really understand about my own views? And how can I distinguish this from my, this violinist case from my views about abortion? Um, but yeah, the distinction between uh, killing versus letting die always comes up pretty quickly. It seems like maybe a difference between that case and abortion. I don't know that it's the most important one, actually, but it's a, it's a good starting point. So the, I guess the general idea is, look, just in general, even granting the humanity, the personhood of the fetus, we don't think that other people have this sort of universal right to use our bodies. And just like I don't necessarily think that the violinist might have the right to use my body just because not doing that might kill him. So that's sort of how the analogy proceeds. And she gives another examples, a number of other analogies like that to sort of show us that, no, our intuitions ought to support abortion. Now, I think ultimately they're flawed, but they're pretty interesting and sometimes subtle to draw out. In addition to the violinist example, she uses the example of being sick and the only thing that can cure you if is if Henry Fonda comes from California and puts his cool hand on your fevered brow um, do you have a right to that does he have to come tell us about that a little bit sure yeah it, it's a fun example it comes up in the context where Thompson is discussing under what circumstances do we or do we not have a responsibility to save someone else's life if it's possible for us to do so and so, right, that's the scenario, she says. Even if by some paramphasibile, if through some crazy accident, the only thing that will save my life is Henry Fonda flying out and touching my fevered brow, he doesn't have the obligation to do that, says Thompson, because he simply doesn't have that kind of responsibility for my life, even if by accident of circumstances is the only thing that will save it. And that is really interesting with students. Sometimes uh, the, the first thing they'll say is, who's Henry Fonda? Which, <laughs> which kind of makes me feel old. But, uh, but anyways, there's more disagreement, I think, among the high school students about that question than about the violinist. Um, some of them will tend to say, well, he doesn't really have to. And then Thompson says, what if he's already in the same room and all he has to do is walk across the room? He doesn't need to fly out from California. And she, she says, well, the moral principle is the same. He doesn't have that moral obligation. He might be a jerk if he didn't do it but it wouldn't be morally wrong for him. And that, I think, is contrary to most people's intuitions. Some students feel trapped by the logic. and I've had students say, well, no, I, uh, she seems to be right. He wouldn't be obliged to do that. <laughs> and, and I think that that's a kind of lack of self-awareness. And so I'll say, okay, so this were, suppose this were your spouse on the deathbed and Henry Fonda's right there and all he has to do is reach out and touch her. All right, you're going to say, well, I respect his decision not to do that. No, you're probably going to grab his hand and do it yourself, right? And so, no, it's really, this, is the, this is sort of the scandal. But if it's really easy to save someone else's life, that increases your responsibility, right? And that's hard for them to see that because it sounds like you're saying your responsibility for other, to save someone else's life 
could depend in part on how, how convenient it is for you. And that feels like a scandal to them. But of course, on some level, we all think that. We think we should donate to charity or whatever to help other people. We don't think we should donate 100% of our income all the time, even though it's what we could do. But you say, what's reasonable? Which is why we have principles like tithing. That's part of a flaw, I think, in Thompson's account, that she doesn't want to take into account the question that moral responsibility, in part, depends on what is reasonable. Just because there's no other a priori, no prior reason why uh, why Henry Fonda should have the obligation to save her life doesn't mean that he's not going to have it in these circumstances if it's easy for him to do so. And so questions like, if you were trying to make a nuanced account of abortion, questions like the difficulty of the pregnancy might actually be relevant, which is, I think, one uh, downside to her account. But it, it's really great. It really riles students up and gets them going, So, which is part of the point, I think. Well, in her, her conclusion, she says, first, while I do argue that abortion is not impermissible, I do not argue that it is always permissible. And then she says, second, while I am arguing for the permissibility of abortion in some cases, I'm not arguing for the right to secure the death of the unborn child. Uh, what, what are these distinctions she's making? And uh, I mean, th that, that hasn't exactly held up over time. Right. Yeah. One of the to address that last point first, of course, one uh, issue that's come up recently is the question of what to do if an abortion fails, if the abortion is botched. Do, are we in the child ends up being born alive? Are the medical personnel, should they be required by law to try to save its life at that point because the abortion was botched? Or can they actually just let it die because it was supposed, quote unquote, supposed to be aborted? Um, so, yeah, I think probably the majority of proponents of abortion today would not agree with the, that line of that distinction that Thompson lays out. And I actually don't know uh, what she herself might say about that after seeing how things progressed. But I do think it's a virtue of her account, because it seems to me to be true that even if abortion were okay, it would not be universally and always okay, but only in specialized circumstances. I don't agree with that, but I think that's probably a, a more reasonable take on the position. Just like uh, in Catholic moral theology, we'll talk about the ethics of removing someone from life support, right? We say you can't remove what we call ordinary means of support. You can't stop feeding someone, for example. But if they're hooked up to a ventilator, it's not necessarily always obligatory to leave them on it. Um, but there are distinctions. In some cases, it might be okay and others not. Really, does it happen with these kinds of ethical questions that there's the this sort of absolutely universal, you can always do this, this is always okay. So I think that's an upside of virtue to her account. It's more sophisticated than the typical thing one encounters today. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's the very language that's been used uh, to argue for the Born Alive Infant Protection Acts around the country. Mm -hmm. you're, you're, okay, you might have a right to an abortion, but you don't have a right to a dead baby. Right. And uh, so it's interesting. You've already mentioned this, but why, why do you choose this particular article for the high school juniors and seniors at peak? I think it's, I would say it's a combination of yeah, the factors I was mentioning. Um, it's, it's approachable, it's colorful and vivid. And also many of them are very interested in the pro-life movement. Many of them are even active in the pro-life movement, but typically they haven't really encountered any kind of sophisticated arguments for abortion. Um, and so the sort of the natural assumption is that anyone who supports abortion 
could only do so because they're some kind of moral monster. And if you were, it's sort of maybe that's exacerbated by the political polarization going on in our country today. But if you approach the question with that view, you don't try to understand where the other side is coming from, it's going to make you a less effective advocate. And so I know that a lot of them are interested in that sort of thing. And so this is often their, really their first encounter with um, an attempt to even, even an attempt to present a reasonable and sophisticated defense for abortion. And it really gets them thinking. The whole point of my segment, it's a sort of a four or five day introduction to philosophy is to just expose them to that sort of thinking. And this is really their first, their first approach to that. And they get excited about it. They get worked up. So it seems to work really well. They start to realize that, hey, thinking about big questions is important. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm sure they also realize that their own pro-life position is not real nuanced uh, at age 16 or 17. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I've seen I've I've seen students uh, essentially say, well, I think she's right about the violinist. You don't have to stay plugged into her. But I'm going to say that you must because I don't see otherwise how to reconcile with my view. And so, yeah, that really brings out, gets them to realize that there's a lot more to be said than what I've heard. Could you give us some other examples of how students respond when uh, they read the arguments and and I assume, find a Wyoming Catholic College professor playing devil's advocate in class? <laughs> oh, I do. It, it, would, it would take out all of the fun if I didn't do any of that. <clears throat> and, and also, they need that to really uh, see how, what she's trying to say. But uh, typically, they know when I do that, that's what I'm doing. They don't, they're not too scandalized. Uh, once in a while, a student will be. Uh, there's a certain kind of background, maybe, that a few students will come from where they think that if you respond to this in any other way than saying, let's condemn this, then there's a problem. Are you, are you, a, are you a terrible person? Are you really Catholic? That sort of thing. Um, and it, but it's really great. I guess it's a real, real introduction, I think, to seeing, look, you can try to understand the other side even if you don't agree with them. And in fact, you should do that. Even if all you're interested in is apologetics, you can do that better if you understand the other side. Um, so... So it, once in a while, it's a little bit of a scandal. That's kind of fun. It's, it's never a terrible one. So, With Dobbs, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. It did not, however, overturn pro-abortion arguments, pro-abortion activist organizations, pro-abortion legislation, or the pro-abortion mentality that pervades our culture. In addition to works of charity and mercy, and I refer here especially to pregnancy care centers, and in addition to continued advocacy for the unborn, we can learn the arguments and reasons supporting abortion along with the counter-arguments for life. That way, we can lovingly give an answer to those whose hearts and minds can be changed. And above all, we can pray. The enemy is strong, and as David said before engaging his strong enemy, Goliath, the battle is the Lord's. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.